Can you uh, turn to the person next to you and say, I'm so thankful, I'm thankful, thankful for you, thank God for you. Can you just say something like that as we greet each other? When I was in, in high school, I remember right around Valentine's Day, there would be these things that we could buy for um, our friends, our classmates, our loved ones, our, you know, person we're crushing on in school. Uh, there were these things called candygrams. They were like telegrams, but they had candy on it. It was for Valentine's Day, and you would write the person's name, and you'd pay like $3, and uh, they would deliver these candygrams to people in the school. So we'd be sitting in class, an English class or math class or whatever class it was, and someone would come from the office and they, we'd say, Mrs. Who at so-and-so's class or Mr. So-and-so's class, uh, we have candy gram delivery, and everyone's like, oh, yay, you know, this is great because none of us were getting it except for, like, the people we knew. There would be the same old people, the one who had a boyfriend or a girlfriend. It was the one who was, like, uber popular. It was, like, the football team, the best guy or the cheerleader, whoever it was, and, and everyone knew who's going to get a candy gram, and we're like, oh, yeah, big deal. I never got one. I never gave one, so I was just like, this is just a break in the day. So everyone's getting their candy grams who we expected to get a candy gram. And every once in a while, there would be someone whose name would be called. And we'd be like, who did they just call? Like, who's getting a candy gram? And then we would think in our minds like, wow, are you sure they should be getting a candy gram? They're not the most popular. They're not the most uh, well-known. They don't have that many friends. And we would always ask ourselves, are you sure that you sent the candy gram to the right person? Why were they getting the candy gram. It was a mystery to us. 2,000 years ago, Jesus wasn't passing out candy grams, but he was passing out letters that he was giving to churches in Asia Minor. There were a bunch of churches in Asia Minor, which is now modern-day Turkey. There are a bunch of churches there, but he singled out seven churches in order to give letters to them. And the first three that we've looked at, they made sense. They were these great big cities that were important for different reasons, either because of politics or because of religion or because of their relationship with Rome or because of their beauty or because of their uh, seaside location for commerce or whatever it was. But then we come to the fourth letter today to a church in Thyatira, and the question that we're asking as we're hearing this letter being delivered is, why Thyatira? (laughs) Are you sure you sent the letter to the right church? Because, you see, Thyatira wasn't very important. It wasn't big. It wasn't known for anything. It was a blue-collar town. There weren't many people of of significance that ever came out of there or that ever lived there. Uh, The only thing it was known for was basically it was a town that you would come to before you get to Pergamum, which is the church we looked at last week. Pergamum was the capital city of Asia Minor. Rome had its headquarters there. And so Thyatira was basically the next stop before you got into, the next mail stop before you got to Pergamum, and it was basically a defense town. So people worked hard, there were were strong people, there were uh, hardworking people, but there was nothing really to write home about. If you're taking a road trip of ancient Asia Minor and you chart out all the cool places you want to stop at, no one ever stopped at Thyatira. Maybe to get gas, but there was not much else that was there. And so why to that sleepy little city, that tiny little city, and the church that met there, did Jesus write a letter to them? We're going to see that there was a very important message that Jesus had for them then, and a very important message that he has for us here today. We're going to look at Revelation 2. We're going to read verses 18 to 29, but you remember that there are seven churches to whom Jesus wrote, the number seven Uh, real churches, but the number seven represents perfection. And so in the timelessness of the Word of God, what was spoken 2,000 years then to the churches has extreme relevance throughout the past 2,000 years, but in the timeliness of the Word of God. We see that this is a very clear word for us today, the church in the West, the church in America, our church here at Harvest. God says something to us as we overhear the letter that was written to this small little city in ancient Asia Minor. This is the word of God for the people of God then, the people of God now. It says, To the angel of the church in Thyatira write, These are the words of the Son of God, whose eyes are like blazing fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. I know your deeds, your love and faith, 
your service and perseverance, and that you are now doing more than you did at first. Nevertheless, I have this against you. You tolerate that woman Jezebel, calls herself a prophetess. By her teaching, she misleads my servants into sexual immorality and the eating of food sacrificed to idols. I've given her time to repent of her immorality, but she ain't willing. So I'll cast her on a bed of suffering, and I'll make those who commit adultery with her suffer intensely unless they repent of her ways. I will strike her children dead, then all the churches will know that I am he who searches hearts and minds, and I will repay each of you according to your deeds. Now I say to the rest of you in Thyatira, to you who do not hold to her teaching and have not learned Satan's so-called deep secrets, I'll not impose any other burden on you. Only hold on to what you have until I come. To him who overcomes and does my will to the end, I'll give authority over the nations. He will rule them with an iron scepter. He will dash them to pieces like pottery, just as I've received authority from my Father. I'll also give him the morning star. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. This is God's Word. What is Jesus saying, and why does the smallest church get the longest message? The church in Thyra was started most likely by a lady named Lydia. We see her, I think, in Acts chapter 19, but she was originally from here, went to Philippi, perhaps because of her, uh, of her clothing business, and then she came back here to Thyatira, and most likely she was the one who began um, this little church in this little city called Thyatira. It wasn't very important. It was, if you think about cities today, hardworking, blue-collar, kind of like Pittsburgh, kind of like Detroit, uh, maybe like Cleveland. Some have commentators said it's like Flint, Michigan. But these are not white-collar people. These are people who grind and they work difficult jobs, carpentry and trade, pottery, uh, clothing industry. They're just people who are hard-working folks, but not really much else to write home about as it relates to this city. And so why is Jesus writing to them? It's clearly the way that Jesus identifies himself. First, he says he's a son of God, which means uh, he is God himself. The only people called the son of God in the Roman Empire was the emperor himself. And so Jesus comes out clearly and says, listen, I am God incarnate. And then he says, whose eyes are like blazing fire. In other words, I see what you're doing right now. I see you picking your fingernails. I see you looking at your phone when it looks like you're looking at your Bible. <laughs> I see you falling asleep. Jesus says, with eyes of blazing fire, I see all of these things, right? You tell your friend you're on your Bible app, but I know what you're doing. You're on eBay. <laughs> see what you're doing. This is what Jesus is saying. I see, right? I see, I see, and I see things that other people don't see, and I see differently than the way others see. I don't know if you remember um, in elementary school when you were learning how to count money. Do you remember these days? I remember hearing a rhyme that said, Henry Horton Humpernickel spent his dime and saved his nickel thinking he was very wise to manage money by its size. And it goes on and on and on because Henry Horton Humpernickel thought that the size of the coin determined the importance of that coin. And Mr. Diamond, Mr. Mr. Nickel told them that was not the case. And what Jesus is saying is don't make that mistake. I don't make that mistake when it comes to my churches. Sometimes you think bigger churches are better. Sometimes you think littler churches are better, but Jesus says, I don't measure by the metrics that the world measures by. I see things with eyes of blazing fire that nobody else sees. And so Jesus says, let's cut to the chase here. Let's cut through all of that stuff and all of the facade and all of the veneer and all of the masks and all the disguises. Let me pierce through all of that and let me get to the heart because your church matters to me. To all the churches of five people out there who feel like no one cares about us, Jesus says, I see. To the church of 10,000, Jesus says, I see that too. I see you feel like you're anonymous, a face in the crowd of 10,000. He says, I see all of those things. And so what does Jesus say to the shock of the people of Thyatira? He says, I see you. And he says, I see, I know your deeds, your love and faith, your servants, and perseverance, and you're now doing more than you did at first. 
to this church in this sleepy town. He says, I see what you're doing. You're doing great things. You're doing wonderful things. Your love, your faith, your serving, your perseverance, your full in terms of the work that you're, in fact, when you first started as a church, you did a lot of stuff, but now you're doing more and more things for me. Jesus is not just saying the church calendar on the website is full of activity. He's saying you're living it out in faith. Jesus says, I see all of those things in the little church in Thyatira. But then he takes a hard right turn And then you begin to read the rest of the letter and you realize this is a letter that you don't want to receive. This is a call to the principal that's not telling you you're on the honor roll. It's something that you don't want to hear. And so why does Jesus write this letter to this church and why is it immortalized in the eternal word of God for us today? Why this message for us? Two things that Jesus says as he thinks about the church and what the marks of a church is. Here's the first thing. He says you must not tolerate false teaching in the church. He says, no matter how loving you are, no matter how much faith you have, no matter how much service you have, no matter how much you're persevering, no matter that you're doing more things now that you did after 30 years than after five years, one thing that you need to cling to is this idea that you cannot, you must not, you must not tolerate false teaching in the church. And it was being propagated in this day and age. This is important because 2,000 years ago, I mean, it was a different world. Today, you realize again the timeless and timely nature of the Word of God. It says you tolerate, nevertheless I have this against you, you tolerate that woman Jezebel. This is huge because in our 21st century world, again, we talked about this last week, tolerance is seen as such a prized virtue. This idea that you need to accept and embrace the different values and beliefs and actions of other people, even when they disagree with you, you need to accept them as an equally viable option. This is the heartbeat of tolerance. And it's known by slogans such as, everyone has their opinion. It might be right for you, but it might not be right for somebody else. Your truth is your own truth. Tolerance in our world is seen outside of the church as the highest virtue and the only vice in our world, a world stripped of its morals, the only vice is that you are intolerant. That's the world in which we live, a a world whose feet are firmly planted in the morality of nowhere. That's the world in which we live, a world in which tolerance rules. Yeah, let them believe what they want to believe. That's fine. And what Jesus is saying is, you must not tolerate. For the past 2,000 years, he's been saying this. You must not tolerate false teaching within the church. Would you know it if you saw it? Because that's what was happening here. Tolerance, as much as we prize it, you know it has its limitations, right? It's got to have its limitations, You could say, oh, okay, everyone knows. Everyone ought to know, like 2 plus 2 equals 4. But if you say 2 plus 2 equals 10, and in the name of tolerance, we begin to say, okay, you know what, that's that's right, that's fine. You can believe what you want to believe as long as you let me believe 2 plus 2 equals 4. 2 plus 2 equals 10 works well, but if your accountant says it doesn't work well, if your banker says it doesn't work well, if your credit card statement says, no, 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 2 plus 2 equals 10 doesn't work, do we accuse them of being intolerant? You see, tolerance only works so far because at a certain level, you have to realize that there are certain absolutes that ground everything that this world is built upon. Several years ago, about two, three decades ago, the number one way that you would share the gospel with somebody, if you want to give them a, a, a pamphlet, was called the four spiritual laws. It says there are four laws that govern the universe, that uh, God loves you, has a wonderful plan for your life, and all of the, these four spiritual laws, you need to accept Jesus. About 30 years ago, the four spiritual laws were changed in order to reflect post-modernity. The laws themselves and the teaching in the pamphlet was not changed, but the title was changed to be your most important relationship. Why? Because the reasoning was modern, post-modernity, people do not believe in absolute truth anymore. Or in fact, if they do, they don't, they don't call it that. And so if you say there are four laws that govern the universe, they'll immediately tune out and say, I don't believe in those laws. They're laws for you, but they're not laws for me. 
And so reframing it under the cloak of your most important relationship, because everyone longs for relationship, the four spiritual laws were amended to talk about how your relationship with God is the most important thing, and it is appropriated through faith, and the grace of God is shown through Jesus Christ. What ended up happening, though, in culture, I don't, you know, they were absolutely right to, uh, to reframe it in order to reach a world that was unreachable through the lenses of modernity. What ended up happening uh, in our culture is that a shift came where people said, you know what, we don't believe that there's such things as truth that is absolute for everybody. We value the relationship more. This is where the idea of tolerance comes in. Because if you value the relationship, then you would tolerate their truth, even if it's not the same thing as your truth. The shadow side of it, problematic, is that that's not really loving when you know that the truth in which they're engaging in is not the truth at all. I hope I'm not confusing you. Jesus says the problem with the church in Thyatira was that you're tolerating this false teaching and you're accepting it as okay. And it was coming through a lady named Jezebel. It wasn't her real name, but that was what they called her because you don't know anyone named Jezebel, right? You probably don't. I don't think you know anyone named Jezebel because no one wanted to name their child Jezebel because of what she represented. It's like you, I, I don't know many people who would name their child Judas because of what he represents. But Jezebel is what they called this lady in the church in Thyatira. So who was Jezebel in the Old Testament? She was married to a king of Israel named Ahab, and she was a bad, bad woman. She was a bad woman behind a bad man who was leading the people of God astray. She, her dad was a king of a place called Sidon, and they married in order to form a military political alliance. But what she did was she introduced the gods of Sidon into Israel. The gods of Sidon, the main one was named Baal, and he was a fertility god. And so fertility and having children was everything in those days. It was your wealth, it was your status, because it was an agrarian culture. Uh, you needed people to help you harvest a field. And so if you had children, this would mean you could harvest more uh, for your family. Having children was everything in those days. And if you could or could not have children, you would still pray to the god Baal in order that you could have as many kids as Baal would allow you to have. And so in the temple of Baal, all kinds of immoral sexual activity would happen uh, you would have sex with people who were not your husband if you're a woman and you were not your uh, wife if you were a man. Uh, that, that kind of stuff would be happening. And it was a completely immoral kind of a lifestyle. And that's what Jezebel brought into the people of God. That's what happened in the Old Testament, and that's what was happening in the New Testament. Can you imagine this? The church in Thyatira, okay? just a church just like us, and a lady came in teaching that you could eat food that was sacrificed to idols and you could engage in sexual immorality. And you could do that and still follow Jesus with all of your heart. How in the world could that kind of teaching enter into the church? Well, it came in through understanding the city and the nature of the work that people were engaged in. So remember, this is a blue-collar town, city, hardworking people. There were carpenters, there were potters, people who made clothes, people who made dyes, people who did all kinds of construction. And in order to have a job within Thyatira, not only would you do that kind of a work, but you were protected by what's called a labor guild. It's kind of like, almost like a labor union, but so much more. If you wanted a job in Thyatira, you needed to be part of a guild. And what they would do is, in the absence of government programs in those days, they didn't have retirement, no social security, no welfare system, uh, nothing to take care of. If, if there was a global pandemic, they didn't have stimulus checks that were given out. So what do you do if the government's not going to take care of you? You join a guild, and your guild would become the people who would take care of you if something happened to you. Oftentimes, if you wanted to get married, you would get married in the place where the guild meets. Seems like a good thing so far. It's a pretty nice labor union, a nice community of people with whom you gather. After work, here you are, you're a carpenter, you go to the Carpenters Guild. The problem is, for a child of God, is that every one of these guilds had a God. If you want God's blessing over your business, then you need to worship the God of your guild. And so here's what you would do. After work, you would go, and with your buddies, you would hang out, and you would go to the temple where your guild would meet. 
you would drink alcohol, wine, because I was always a part of it, and then you would eat food that had been sacrificed to this God. And in time, what ended up happening in your drunkenness, all of these gods propagated a false ideology of sexuality that said, you can sleep with whomever you want to sleep with. And so people would do that. It was a cross. A guild was a cross between a labor union and a frat house. Okay, that's what a guild was. And to the people of God, the question is, how, how, can we, how, do, how do we do this? Like, how do we work? How do we earn a living and still be part of a guild? Because we, be, we, can't, we can't have a job if we're not part of a guild. How do we do that? And yet, how do we become part of the guild and not worship the God that everyone else in this guild is worshiping? How do we follow Christ in the midst of Thyatira? This was a dilemma, and this was a major, major, not only theological, but moral issue for the people of Thyatira. What do we do? And so many people were compromising because they said, I've got to take care of my family. Others said, you know what, we're going to take a hard line and we're going to say, uh, we're going to just have to figure it out on our own, apart from the guild, apart from work. And then comes this lady named Jezebel. And she enters in and she's like, what's the commotion? What's the big deal, guys? What's the big deal? And they tell them, tell her their issue. And she says, you know what, I'm a prophetess. I heard from God. I heard from God. And here's the secret that God told me. No problem. You can be a Christian and still be part of a guild. You can still be a Christian and still engage in sexual immorality and eat the food that was sacrificed to the false gods and the idols. You could be, part of, you could be, part, you could be a Christian and be part of the guild, and then she would say things like, don't you think God, do you think God really wants you to starve? Do you think God wants you to not have a job? Do you think God cannot forgive you if you engage in sin? Do you think that sin is too big for God to forgive? And she began twisting the Word of God and the expressed teachings of Scripture, making it more palatable. And so believers at the church in Thyatira began to believe her teaching. That you could be a Christian and not live under the Lordship of Christ. Why did they believe it, though? I'll tell you why they believed it. It's the same reason why we believe false teaching today. The reason they believed the teaching of Jezebel is because they wanted to believe the teaching of Jezebel. Because this is what false teachers do, don't they? They peddle a message that makes them popular with the masses. That's why people want to follow them. Can I ask you why the church in the First, I'm sorry, the 11th, 12th, 13th, 14th, 15th centuries. Why the church in those early days, in the Middle Ages, Dark Ages, why did they believe that you could pay money to the church and be forgiven of your sins and go to heaven? Why did they believe that? I'll tell you why. Because they wanted to believe that. Why did they believe that it's not just heaven or hell, but there's a, there's a third place you could go to. It's not found anywhere in Scripture, but let's make up this place, a place called purgatory where you could be purged of your sins even after you're dead so that one day you can go to heaven. Why do people believe in the idea of purgatory? I'll tell you why. Because they wanted to believe the idea of purgatory. Why do people believe that there's no hell? Because it's pretty convenient on our conscience to not believe that? Why do some people believe that there are other ways to get to heaven? Several years ago, I remember being at a meeting where a pastor, someone who wanted to be a pastor, was being, or, uh, was being examined on the floor of this meeting, and we're asking questions. This guy wanted to be a pastor of a Christian church. And as questions were being asked of him, one of the questions said, do you believe that Jesus Christ is the only way to salvation, the only way to heaven? And he said, I'm not sure about that. There may be other ways. Are you kidding me? And of course, there was an uproar. There was murmuring. Like, how can you be a minister of the gospel? Like, apart from what the Word of God says, clearly, 
I am the way, the truth, and the life, said Jesus. No one comes to the Father except through me. Acts 4.12, there's no other name under heaven by which we're saved but the name of Jesus. Apart from what the Bible clearly states, there are other people who said, you know what, 19 centuries of missionaries have given their lifeblood for the sake of this message. Why would they lay down their lives if there was another way? Why would God Almighty, infinite, eternal, immortal, holy, only wise God give His one and only Son, not one of a million, but His one and only Son, to die a brutal death, to be unjustly tried and tortured and murdered in the most horrific and heinous way? Why would He give His Son as the ultimate sacrifice if the answer to the question, how then can we be saved, is a multiple choice answer where all of the answers are legitimately viable? Why would God do that if that was the way to salvation, if there were other ways to salvation. Why do we believe these things? Believe these things because we want to believe them. And I will say that usually it's because two things have happened. Our theological drift happens because, one, our emotions have gotten too involved in these things. What happens? So here at sexual immorality, the biblical sexual ethic is as clear as anything else. Here's the way sex is to be enjoyed. The context of a marriage relationship, a man and a woman, this is the context of sexual fulfillment and delight the way that the Creator has ordained it. And we hold the, for 2,000 years, we've held these truths. It's been indisputable by anybody. And then the past 20 years, people have started bringing these rogue ideas. Where did these things come from? Even people who are theologically convinced, or so you thought, begin embracing these aberrant or uh, errant theologies. Why? Well, usually it happens when we know what we believe and then we start having conversations with people, start talking to people. Yeah, you know, this person, uh, I really love them, and, um, and they rejected Jesus all their life. They just went to their funeral. Maybe there's another way. Hey, I, you know, I, I love this person. I've always held the biblical ethic of uh, the sexual ethic to be true, but then I, I start talking to this person. They're questioning their, their gender identity, and, and, and maybe, maybe the Bible is, is wrong, or maybe it's outdated, or maybe... And so we begin altering our theology in order to deal with the cognitive dissonance in our hearts that we feel. If we base our theology upon our emotions, my friends, that is shaky, shaky ground. But this is what a lot of people are doing. Jesus is saying, you must not tolerate false theology in the church. It doesn't mean... And see, there's a higher virtue than tolerance. Jesus is saying the virtue higher than tolerance is love. Right? To love people who are different than you, who think differently than you. But at the same time, not throwing out the realities of how this world works for the sake of assuaging a disrupted relationship in the name of tolerance. The other reason we often go astray in our theology is because morally we've already left our theology. This is what Tim Keller says. He says, you know, when people start questioning the basic truths of Scripture, right, the time-tested, tried-and-true truths of Scripture, and people start questioning those and they start uh, wondering, ah, and straying from them, his question always is, how is your sex life? That's what he says. He says they've already gone astray morally and in order to deal with the cognitive dissonance within their hearts. A lot of times we err theologically because we've already erred morally. And our theological disagreements are often simply a disguise for what's going on emotionally or what's going on morally within our lives. That's how it was for these folks here. The reason they, they embraced the teachings of Jezebel is because they wanted to embrace the teachings of Jezebel, because they wanted to live whatever way they wanted to live and still be able to say, I'm going to heaven. The grave has no claim on me because I'm his, but his word has no claim on me either. First thing, 
that Jesus says to this church, first thing he says to us is you must not tolerate false teaching within the church. The second thing that Jesus says, he says repeated warnings are given to protect you from danger and to lead you to life. Repeated warnings. I and my family a couple of years back went to the Grand Canyon. And if you've been to the Grand Canyon, you know there are certain places where there are guardrails and there are a lot of places where there aren't. They just can't, they just can't put guardrails up everywhere around that massive gorge there. But everywhere you go, there are signs. Warning, danger, don't go past here. Steep cliff, invisible cliff, uh, no guardrails, all these warnings everywhere. Why? I don't believe that a national park could get sued, but the reason there are repeated warnings is because it's worth warning people about repeatedly because people have constantly gone against the warnings to their own demise. Repeated warnings are there to protect us from danger and to lead us from life, to lead us to life. And yet, no matter the warnings, every year, 12 people on average died at the Grand Canyon. Over 800 people have died there. In fact, when we were there uh, just a couple weeks before, a lady had fallen to her demise at the Grand Canyon. Happens all the time. There are warning signs there, but ignoring them can lead to danger. You know, I, I, I feel the same way that you do. As I was reading this passage, as I was studying this, I said, oh my goodness, here we go again. Food sacrifice to idols, sexual immorality. Didn't we just talk about that last week? I swear we just talked about it last week. Oh, yeah, we did talk about it last week. He talks about it all the time. Why? It's not just in Asia Minor. It's not just in Revelation. That went back to Genesis. I saw Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Judges. All throughout, all throughout the Bible, the Bible is constantly talking about sex. And it's constantly talking about the dangers of it. Also, why? Because warnings are repeatedly given because people have repeatedly fallen in to danger in these areas. Think about how many great men and women of God were waylaid and could not fulfill their God-given destiny in all of its fullness because of the sin of temptation with people of the opposite world could not, could not get their sexuality under the lordship of Christ. It's from the very... I mean, from the, from the get-go, it's Abraham, the father, it's Noah. These two people who are prized as models of the faith, they both did silly things in the name of self-preservation, in the name of drunkenness. Jacob marries two wives, and it gets worse with like David and, and Solomon and other kings doing all kinds of immoral things. Repeated warnings are given to warn us of danger, to protect us from danger. They're also given in order that we might be led in the way of life. Repeated warnings were given to the people of Thyatira. It was given to Jezebel also. He says, I have given Jezebel time to repent of her immorality, but she is unwilling. So I'll cast her on a bed of suffering. I'll make those who commit adultery with her suffer intensely unless they repent of her ways. I'll strike her children dead. Then all the churches will know that I am he who searches hearts and minds, and I'll repay each, according, each of you according to your deeds. In other words, Jesus is saying, Jezebel, listen, you want a bed, let me give you a bed. It's a bed of suffering. Because there's one unshakable, inescapable rule of the kingdom of God. It says, you will reap what you sow. So Jesus is saying, I gave her many chances to repent. And those who are sleeping in the same bed as Jezebel, I gave them many, many, many opportunities to repent. But they have not. And if they do not, then there will be consequences to her and the generations to come. There were many commentators who would say that in the 1980s, the explosion of the AIDS epidemic was a direct fulfillment of what Jesus was saying here. I don't know if I would necessarily equate those two things, but one thing is clear, that the warnings of Jesus against a sexual ethic that does not fall under the teachings of Scripture 
are dangerous, right? The warnings are numerous. Why do we see this throughout Scripture? It's because so much, right, so much of, and uh, whenever you see the people of God go astray, in the Old Testament and the New Testament, so many times going astray, it's the church in Corinth, it's the Israelites in idolatry. Whenever they're going astray, almost always in the same breath, it mentions their immorality when it comes to their sexual ethic also. Because, and, and you go to any counselor and you could ask them this today, they will say that our spirituality, our spiritual life, and our sexuality are so deeply tied and interwoven with one another. This is what Freud said. It's what Jung says. It's what biblical counselors say. It's so deeply interwoven with one another. That's why whenever you see the worship of idols in Scripture, almost always you will see uh, a stray sexuality. That's why, uh, you, you, if you study up on cults, right, modern-day cults, almost all of them have some kind of deviant sexual ethic with it also. Why? And why does God talk about it so much? Because the interconnection between sexuality and spirituality are so close. It's not just a physical thing, as some would say. It's so much more than that. So what does it tell us then? That we live in a world that is absolutely swimming and drowning and soaking and saturated in sexuality. Everywhere you look, I can't, watch, I can't watch a basketball game without seeing something that would cause me to tell my kids, don't look. You probably can't go on social media and not see things all up in your grill promoting a false kind of sexuality that's not between a husband and a wife. It's unmarried people. It's same gender, whatever it might be. It's, it's an adulterous relationship. You see that? That's the kind of stuff that that, that draws reviews on TV. But what does it say then? What does it say? Okay, this is huge. What does it say about the state of a nation, the state of a culture, when we are drowning in sexuality? Here's what it's saying, is that we are starving internally. We are starving spiritually. If these two are so deeply connected and we're swimming over the edge in sexuality, this is what G.K. Chesterton said. He said, every time you knock on the door of a brothel, you're looking for Jesus. Anytime you go to that illicit affair relationship, anytime you engage in something that you ought not to, anytime you look at pornography, he says, every time you open that thing up, you're looking for Jesus. And the fact that we're swimming in our sexuality is a sign that we're deeply empty at the deepest core of who we are, that we will eat anything because we're so starving inside. One of the, you know, you're hearing about this a lot maybe, about these sewer rats in New York City. I loved, I loved reading about these. It's fascinating to me. I don't get that grossed out by rats unless I see them in real life, but it used to be in the alleyways of, of Chinatown in Washington, D.C., in the alleys in different places when um, leftover food would get thrown into the dumpster. Like rats would go and they would go foraging for food, and so they would find these like rats the size of like kittens, like in the alleyways, big like mutated, nasty-looking rats, long tails, nasty. But during COVID, COVID, when restaurants shut down, did you hear this? When restaurants shut down, these rats didn't have anything to eat. And so what did they do? They would eat, because they're so hungry, they would eat whatever they could. So big rats ate smaller, starving, hungry rats. Bigger rats became bigger rats. It was a survival of the fittest. And the fear, I remember reading this article, the fear was that rats would become not only so big, but so fearless because they're looking for food, that they would come and they would attack <laughs> human beings. That is utterly insane in the membrane. Giant, super rats who are eating anything because they're so hungry. We have a lot of such rats in our world who are starving. And so we'll eat anything even if it goes contrary to the teachings of Scripture. 
Jesus is saying, there are repeated warnings to protect you, to guard you, to be the guardrails, to point you to the way life is meant to be lived in order that you could really live and thrive in that way. It wasn't the entire church of Thyatira. It's not the entire church in our world today. To those who, to those who were, he says, come back and repent. Surrender your life to the Lordship of Jesus Christ again, and you will find life the way that it was meant to be lived. And then he says, now, I say the rest of you in Thyatira, to you who, who don't hold to her teaching, have not learned Satan's so-called deep secrets, will not impose any other burden on you, only hold on to what you have until I come. He says, she's peddling this secret knowledge. She said, she's a prophetess from God. I got this secret knowledge. And Jesus is saying, no, 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 no. That teaching is really a secret that Satan is whispering into your ear. That's the depth of the secret. It's not from me. It's not from God. It's from the enemy who seeks to steal and to kill and to destroy John chapter 10. Says, this is the secret. This is where it's coming from. This is its genesis. This is its origin. And then he says, you know, some of you guys are doing it well. In every letter that Jesus writes to the church, there are, most of them, there are recommendations. And then there's a, a here's what you should do, a requirement. Jesus says to the church in Thyatira, I'm not, I'm not going to tell you, there's nothing else, okay? Nothing else that I'm going to tell you to do. I'm not going to put another burden on you. Here's what I'm saying. Just hold the line on this. Just hold fast to me. That's it. That's how important this is to Jesus. He says, hold this because you cannot hold on to Jezebel and hold on to Jesus at the same time. You'll have to let go of one or the other. And so it is for us also. What are the teachings that you've allowed to come into your heart, into your life? Because, I know, you know, not all, not all of us in here struggle with the particular sins of Thyatira, but we're living in a world that does. And all of us are in relationship with people who are struggling in this way. And we need to be able to hold the line. Because he says, listen, the other churches are hearing about what's going on in that little church. He says, for the sake of the witness and the purity of the church, I'm going to encourage you to hold the fort on this one because it matters that much. And then he says, to the one who overcomes and does my will to the end, I'll give authority over the nations. He'll rule them with an iron scepter. He'll dash them to pieces like pottery just as I have received authority from my Father. I'll also give him the morning star. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He says, if you overcome then when you get to the other side in glory, you will rule over the nations, you will rule, reign with me, and you will shepherd the nations. And then he says, I'll also give the morning star. What is a morning star? Morning star was, without trying to insult your intelligence, the morning star was a star that rose <laughs> in the morning. <laughs> It was the first sign that morning is coming, and typically it comes during the darkest period of the night, maybe 3 o'clock in the morning. The morning star would rise, and it would be a certain sign that indeed the morning is coming. No matter how dark it looks in Thyatira, a morning star is rising. No matter how dark it looks in America, the morning star could rise to those who would cling and hold to me, it was the star that rose in the darkest of nights, the sign that certainly the promised morning is going to come, and with it would come the mercies that are new every day. But when you think of the morning star, that's great because we sang of this. I can see a light in the darkness as the darkness bows to him. And because of that, I can hold on a little bit longer because Jesus is coming. He's coming. And there is a promise of his return. 
But even more so, I think there's a greater reason for us to want to cling to Jesus instead of Jezebel, to let go of our idols, to reject the false ideologies and the teachings that oftentimes enter into the church, maybe not from the pulpit, but from your own conversations that you have with other people. Yeah, why don't you explore your sexuality? There's no harm in doing a little bit. Yeah, God, of course God will forgive you. Yeah, you know what? I know you can still say you're a Christian and still cut corners here and there. You can still cheat a little bit here and there to reject the false ideologies. Why? Why? Why does he say that? Because the morning star is not just a star that shines in the morning, but you want to find out what the morning star is, and quite literally you can go to the back of the book and on the last page of the Bible, Revelation 22, verse 16, this is what Jesus says. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to you to give you this testimony for the churches. I am the root and the offspring of David, and this is what he says. I am the bright morning star. For all the reasons why you should listen to the call of Jesus in the area of our sexuality and in the area of immorality, idolatry, and every reason of our lives is not just to avoid danger, it's not just to find life, but because at the end of the day, you get more of Jesus. You get more of Jesus into the church. He's saying, you get your bridegroom. You get intimacy with Jesus. We, it's every, every church Jesus is writing to. He says, of all of the things that I can give to you, of all of the promises of reward, the greatest reward is that you can see more of Jesus. That you have more of Jesus. That you love Jesus more. That you're loved by him. That you understand it. That you see him. That you can hear his voice. That there's conviction in your heart. That you can scale the mountain of God and climb up into that holiest place that you thought was reserved only for a certain elite group of people. He says, if you hold to me, you get more of Jesus by surrendering your heart, your life, your morals to me your life under the lordship of Christ. You get more of Jesus. How do we get, how do we, how can we, how can we do that? Stained by sin. How can we ascend into that place? Because in our stead, Jesus ascended up another mountain where the view was not that beautiful, where the view would lead to a sinner's cross of hard, painful, rough wood that would pierce the already bloody, broken back of our Savior. The one who knew glory beyond measure traded his glory to be stripped naked, to be shamed, in order that we who are ashamed could now stand clothed in robes of righteousness. Jesus climbed up the mountain of Calvary so that we could ascend the mountain of intimacy with God. He says, if you overcome, if you cling to me, you let go of Jezebel and you cling to Jesus, you get more of me. Could there be anything better than that? To those who have an ear to hear, let him or her hear what the Spirit says to the church. Let's pray together. We pray, um, we come to a God of endless grace, grace for the failures, grace for the fallen, grace for those who've messed up, grace for people like me, grace for people like you who know that we've tolerated false teachings, that we've allowed compromising teachings because of a compromised life. And we want to hold the line now for the sake of our church, for the sake of coming generations, for the sake of our witness, for the sake of Jesus. He holds out hope and forgiveness unending no matter what you or I have ever done. He says if you repent, there is forgiveness. If you repent, justice relents and grace and mercy take over and love meets you right where you are. Let's pray.
surrender our hearts, our lives to Jesus. Lord, make me clean. Lord, make me pure. Lord, purify our church. The church of Jesus, not the church of Jezebel. May we follow Christ alone. Let's pray like that for a minute. Pray for yourself. Pray for your neighbor. Pray for your friends. Pray for your brothers and sisters that you know this is a challenge. This is an issue, a struggle for them. Pray that Jesus would be beautiful, more beautiful than this world to them. Let's pray together for a couple moments, and then I'll pray for us. And then we will worship the Lord and seal these truths into our hearts by praying that Jesus would come soon. Let's pray together for a minute like that. Father in heaven, we thank you so much that we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with us in our weakness, but he struggled and he suffered and he knew every emotion that we know, that you're never present help in times of trouble. Perhaps that's why Jesus is so drawn to the broken, to a woman in adultery, to a Samaritan woman, maybe in part because he knew that his mother, though she had done no wrong, was pregnant before marriage. Maybe he knew and was deeply sensitive to the struggles of our day. We thank you that you are not a cold, calculating, ruthless, hold the line of holiness apart from grace, God but that you came full of truth and full of grace, always in love, never to condemn. What kind of God is there like you? Father, help us to surrender to the Lordship of Jesus Christ now and always that we might have greater glimpses of the truly beautiful one. We thank you so much for purifying us, for loving us, and as a response to your love, Lord, help us to love you better, deeper, more joyfully, more sacrificially, until we see you face to face and then forevermore. Thank you so much. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.